The N-OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. And you're on right now with Jim Dawes, your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an American nationalist perspective. You can find us on demand at Spreaker, iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, and the iHeartRadio network. And listen to us live at 1 a.m. Eastern on the Mojo 5.0 radio network. Follow us on Twitter at RightNowJimDawes or email me at RightNowJimDawes at gmail.com. You can call in and leave a voicemail that we might use on a future broadcast at 772-245-0750. That's 772-245-0750. Man, did you catch that Trump rally last night in Grand Rapids, Michigan? The first rally he's held since the the Mueller cover-up ended and the president was exonerated for collusion and for obstruction. You might not actually realize that if you've been watching the news because they really can't wrap their minds around the whole idea that uh, they've been deluded fantasizing about Trump being frog marched out of the White House for going on three years now and they're they're very they're trying very hard to come to terms with it. There was actually a panel on CNN last night, you know, they have these huge panels. Uh, they they started these panels and they will they'll have as many as ten commentators on there. Uh they started them and they they would have one and sometimes even two uh token Trump supporters sort of there as straw dogs so they can knock them down and abuse them and everybody, you know, uh, do a pile on. But those days have ended and they, they just uh, have panels with all uh, Trump haters on there now. And one of those Trump haters has been Mary Catherine Ham. Um, she is supposed to be, you know, a Republican uh, conservative, but uh, she is a never Trumper from the very get go. Uh, And last night uh, they had her on this panel and uh, and she said something that had the rest of the panel just shaking their heads and gnashing their teeth and making faces. Um, I'll just let you listen to it. Look, I'm on board for as much of the Mueller report coming out as humanly possible, partly because we paid for it. But I'm also happy to talk about this story because it is good news. It's very good news for America that he did not collude with a hostile foreign government to come to president. It's very good news that he was not a foreign asset, um, that he is the duly elected president of the United States, whether you voted for him or not. That's good news for the country and our system of government. Um, and I think, look, some people will say you set the bar too low, Mary Catherine. You're very excited that he didn't collude. I didn't set that bar. Um, I think those same people forget how dead certain they were last week that Robert Mueller, the gold standard investigator, after two years of exhausted uh, investigation was going to find that these bad and in fact treasonous things were true about the president. Um, but he didn't. They knew that he wasn't going to deep down in their hearts. They knew that this was a lie concocted 
by Hillary Clinton and the DNC and, and forwarded by the Obama administration and James Clapper and John Brennan. And now that they've come, you know, to this realization, they just could not stand. Mary Catherine Ham pointed out to them that, you know, in normal times, it would be good news that the president of the United States wasn't a traitor. But you should have seen their faces. I wish I could describe. Have you seen that grumpy cat meme on the Internet? That's that's exactly what they look like. But the president, as I said, was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and that was one of the early uh, uh, places where he, you know, was actually able to win the election by taking the uh, industrial upper Midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, and he was welcomed like a conquering hero. And man, he was in fine form last night in Grand Rapids. So I'm just going to start it off with you um, with a sort of an extended clip of Trump uh, calling out what has gone on for the last two years under this Mueller investigation, uh, and and putting this all in context and actually setting out a road forward to get things done. Hello, but he likes Trump. No, but we have a lot of great support. We really do. We have a lot of great support. Far more than you think. But where we really have the support are the voters that pull that handle or whatever the hell they're pulling. They're pulling it for us. So the Russia hoax proves more than ever that we need to finish exactly what we came here to do. Drain the swamp. You got that right. If ever there was a graphic illustration of just how corrupt and dysfunctional Washington, D.C. is, it has been this this travesty that we've been drugged through for these last two years. Instead of focusing on re- improving health care, securing the border, reforming our trade deals, and getting us the hell out of these stupid foreign wars, these Democrats went up there and just uh, wasted all of our time and energy and did huge damage to the body politic in this country. And, uh, and just thank God Donald Trump has the fortitude that he does that he was able to survive all this despite you know, all the price that he paid and actually get a lot done uh, in, in, during those two years. Record economy, um, you know, keep, keeping us out and starting to withdraw from Afghanistan and Syria and um, stopping uh, Little Rocket Man from launching his, uh, his threatening uh, nuclear missile systems not actually nuclear missile systems, but missiles designed to carry nukes and reforming our trade deals with China. Now, I know we had a record trade deal with China. I can tell you what that's all about. I'll save it for a future uh, thing, but that was everybody trying to run, get under the gate, uh, stock up on these cheap Chinese imports before the tariffs take effect. But anyway, I digress. I want to get back to Trump. And uh, here's where he actually calls out what exactly has been going on. The Democrats. 
Democrats have to now decide whether they will continue defrauding the public with ridiculous bullshit. Partisan investigations or whether they will apologize to the American people and join us to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. Bring down the cost of health care. And he went on with a, a list of things that they could actually do if they were interested in doing their job. There's no indication whatsoever, by the way, that Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats, especially pencil-necked Adam Schiff and uh, formerly fat-ass Jerry Nadler, have any intention of actually doing their job. They're, uh, they're butthurt that they've been exposed as liars. And they intend to keep continue lying. I just want to play that clip for you one more. The Democrats have to now decide whether they will continue defrauding the public with ridiculous bullshit. (laughs) That's what you call calling bullshit. And that is exactly what we have been through. Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama put this nation through two years, almost three years of ridiculous bullshit. Borders wide open. They refused to secure it. They, They didn't, not a single vote from the Democrats for the tax cuts that have spurred this record economy. They're even talking about sabotaging his, uh, his reformations to the, uh, the NAFTA agreement. But Trump was uh, in prime form last night in Grand Rapids. And, you know, it's important uh, because I believe one of the reasons, one of the major reasons that Trump won the campaign in 2016 is because he's a much better campaigner. And I don't see anybody that can hold a candle to him as far as firing up a crowd and, uh, and getting his message out and just speaking truth to, uh, to expose the swamp. And the only thing I worry about is uh, after Trump finishes his second term, because I don't see any Democrat that can beat him, who is uh, waiting in the wings. Not sure it's Don Jr. I certainly would uh, support Rand, Rand Paul. But uh, Don Jr. Uh, was the warm-up act for Don Sr. last night. And uh, this is what he had to say about uh, a certain freshman congresswoman. Think about the fact that every mainstream leading Democratic contender is taking the advice of a freshman congresswoman who three weeks ago didn't know the three branches of government. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but that's pretty scary. You guys, you're not very nice. No, not very nice. And neither is what that policy would do to this country. Well, I got to say, you know, it's not very nice to say AOC sucks. Uh, you know, she's she's not the brightest bulb in the in the lamp, but she means well. She's trying to keep people from dying. She can't actually point to any people who who have died as a result of climate change. Never mind the fact that we've got 
you know, thousands and thousands of people dying from the opioid crisis or being killed by illegal immigrants. She wants to focus on people who, I guess, wandered too close to the ocean and were sucked in by rising sea levels. And if you doubt it, well, you just don't believe in science. Here's what Trump Sr. had to say about AOC. That's that, I can tell you right now. You'd be doing wind, windmills, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't blow, you can forget about television for that night. (laughs) Darling, I want to watch television. I'm sorry the wind isn't blowing. (laughs) I know a lot about wind. I know a lot about wind. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a punchline, it's a funny line, but there is truth to it. The Green New Deal is so absurd; it doesn't even take into effect uh, into account that you know large parts of the country don't have wind and don't have a lot of sun in the winter time. If you implemented it as it was presented, and Mitch McConnell brought it forth on the in the Senate for a vote, not a single Democrat. Even the co-sponsors would vote in favor. But you'd literally have people freezing to death by the tens of thousands because there's, it just green energy just cannot take the place of fossil fuels. And if you want to know that it's a scam that they're, they're putting over on, you notice how they avoid any mention of nuclear power. Now, if you were serious, if you seriously believed that fossil fuels were an existential threat and going to end life on Earth, then the only reasonable replacement is nuclear power. But they can't say that because the far left wing of their party that they're out to placate by the Green New Deal to begin with are anti-nuke. So they're willing to take us down this road to fit in with their ideological dogma. And I guess if you followed them down that road, you you would actually end up um, killing people. People would freeze to death. Trump went hard after uh, the Mueller investigation and, uh, you know, the 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 liars on the Democrats that uh, forwarded this thing, not only in the deep state, but in in Congress. And one of his main targets was uh, was Adam Schiff, who yesterday uh, at the first House Intelligence Committee meeting. Every one of the Republicans on the committee signed a letter calling for his uh, resignation for him to be removed as the um, as the chair of that committee. I'm going to play you a clip here. This is uh, Representative Conway. I think he's from Texas. Not a real well-spoken congressman, but he's calling for shift to step down. The special, special counsel's investigation did not find that the Trump campaign or anyone associated with conspired or coordinated with the Russian with Russia in its efforts to influence the 2016 presidential election. 
Special Counsel Mueller's findings are consistent with those of this committee, as well as the public statements of various senators on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Despite these findings, you continue to proclaim to the media that there is significant evidence of collusion. You further stated you will continue to investigate the counterintelligence issues. That is, is the president or people around him compromised in any way by hostile foreign power? Your willingness to continue to promote a demonstrably false narrative is alarming. The findings of the special counsel conclusively refute your past and present assertions and have exposed you as having abused your position to knowingly promote false information, having damaged the integrity of this committee and undermined the faith in the United States government and its institutions. Your actions, both past and present, are incompatible with your duty as chairman of this committee, which alone in the House of Representatives has the obligation and authority to provide effective oversight of the U.S. intelligence community. As such, we have no faith in your ability to discharge your duties in a manner consistent with your constitutional responsibility and urge your immediate resignation as chairman of the committee. Mr. Chairman, this letter is signed by all nine members of the uh, Republican side of the House, of the, of the committee, and I ask unanimous consent to be entered into the record of today's hearing. Adam Schiff was the number one proponent of this lie that has been disproven by their own uh, savior, Robert Mueller, that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. And now he sits with the gavel at the House Intelligence Committee. And nothing that comes out of his mouth can be trusted because he's basically gone on a two-year lying tour. He certainly cannot chair that committee. I don't give a damn if he is the most senior Democrat. They need to find someplace else for him. Actually, what needs to happen is he needs to resign from office and enter a mental health facility. But he's not having any of it. Here's Schiff responding to Conway and the Republicans on the committee's call for him to resign. My colleagues may think it's okay that the Russians offered dirt on a Democratic candidate for president as part of what was described as the Russian government's effort to help the Trump campaign. You might. Oh, wait, I thought he was talking about for a second there the Russian intelligence sources that fed the bullshit disinformation to Christopher Steele for the dossier. Um, No, he's talking about the GPS fusion gps setup where they uh they got a meeting inside trump tower to um to supposedly give dirt on hillary clinton nothing wrong with listening to dirt on your political opponent they didn't they didn't go out looking for it like hillary clinton did sending a um a former spy uh to contact russian intelligence sources to try to get dirt to which they fed her a bunch of bullshit that uh, that they dressed up and put in this dossier that's wrecked our politics for the last two years. But according to, uh, to Schiff, none of that counts. I think that's okay. You might think it's okay that he took that meeting. You might think it's okay that... You might think it's okay that the campaign chairman of a presidential campaign would offer information about that campaign to a Russian oligarch in exchange for money or debt forgiveness. You might think that's okay. A Russian oligarch got polling information that was available to the public. You might think that's okay. A Russian oligarch. Hey, I don't. You might think it's okay that that campaign chairman offered polling data campaign polling data to someone linked to Russian intelligence. I don't think that's okay. 
he is not actually linked to Russian intelligence. That's just the 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 lie that they put in. He is in no way linked to Russian intelligence, and has, as a matter of fact, worked with the FBI and the CIA. He was asked to fund an operation to try to free one of the hostages in Iran at one point. But, um, you know, Manafort made a lot of uh, connections when he was over there in Ukraine. And, uh, and yeah, he gave some polling data, polling data that you could have looked up online, not classified information. He wasn't over there, you know, working to build a, or he wasn't selling a, a, a quarter of our uranium reserves to a Russian uh, Kremlin-owned energy company. He shared polling data. You might think it's okay that the president himself called on Russia to hack his opponent's emails if they were listening. You You might think it's okay that uh, the president said that if anybody had access to those 33,000 emails that Hillary Clinton destroyed in order to cover up her illegality with respect to uh, taking hundreds of millions of dollars in campaign or um, uh, donations to the Clinton Foundation while she was a sitting Secretary of State, well, you might think that's okay. You might think it's okay that later that day, in fact, the Russians attempted to hack a server affiliated with that campaign. I don't think that's okay. It's a lie. It never happened. They never attempted to hack as a result of what Trump was talking about. Trump was talking about emails that had been deleted from Hillary Clinton's server and bleach bedded clean. It was obviously a, a joke, made it in public, but Adam Schiff doesn't think that's okay. You might think it's okay that an associate of the president made direct contact with the GRU through Guccifer 2. This is another lie that uh, Schiff has been proponing. He's talking about Robert uh, Roger Stone trading some Twitter messages with Guccifer 2. And oh, by the way, so was just about every other journalist in town asking if... Uh, if there were going to be any more WikiLeaks, it wasn't a secret. Every reporter in uh, in New York and Washington were sending the same tweets out to Guccifer too. But Roger Stone doesn't think that. I mean, um, Adam Schiff doesn't think that's okay. And WikiLeaks, and considered that is considered a hostile intelligence agency. WikiLeaks is considered a hostile intelligence agency. It's not an intelligence agency. It's a uh, a, a journal or a, uh, a journalistic outlet. It's a news outlet. Does the same things that uh, Washington Post did with the Pentagon Papers, and that um, that the New York Times and the Washington Post did throughout this leaked information. But because it hurt their their uh, chosen candidate, then that's not okay. You might think that it's okay a senior campaign official was instructed to reach that associate and find out what that hostile intelligence agency 
had to say in terms of dirt on his opponent. Yeah, they were so uh, they were colluding so much with the Russian government and WikiLeaks that they had to. Uh, Roger Stone had to ask somebody if they knew anybody that could ask Julian Assange when the uh, leak was coming that he had announced two weeks prior in the newspaper. I mean, this is the kind of lie and the kind of uh, disinformation that prompted people to call for Schiff's resignation. Man, we're going to run out to a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the rise of the man-hating culture. And uh, we're going to have a guest on, Dr. Paul Nathanson, who's written four books on this topic. You've seen it on college campuses. You saw it uh, quite clearly in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And we're going to talk about why uh, the social justice warrior culture is constantly vilifying men. Stick with us. We'll be back right after these messages. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. This episode is sponsored by schwanns.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm. Good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. And you're back on Right Now with Jim Dawes, your daily journal of news, politics, and culture. In our current social justice warrior culture, especially on university campuses, it seems the highest social status you can achieve is victimhood. And where there's a victim, there, of course, must be an oppressor, and that role seems to have fallen largely to men and the patriarchy. This has resulted in a rising culture of contempt and vilification of men. And my next guest, Dr. Paul Nathanson, is a religious studies professor at McGill College in Montreal, I believe it is, who has defined the field of misandry in our culture. If you're unfamiliar with that word misandry, it is the uh, opposite of misogyny. It is the hatred and contempt and discrimination against men. And Dr. Nathanson has written extensively on this topic. He's published four books, the latest of which is Legalizing Misandry, From Public Shame to Systemic Discrimination. 
And he also has spreading misandry, replacing misandry, and sanctifying misandry. Uh, he, he has written these books along with Catherine Young. Uh, Dr. Nathan, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So why am I not to believe that this is just uh, an effort by um, men to jump on the bandwagon of victimhood culture and, uh, and, uh, and get them some of that, uh, that high cultural intersectional uh, social status as well? Well, I think that uh, I think the, the leaders of men's movements, and there, there are several of them, are really would like to see nothing more than to get rid of the whole victim victimology game altogether. Um, there are it's inherently wrong in both moral and political terms um, because nobody can win that kind of conflict. Um, you know, the, the country, the United States and also Canada, where I live, were founded on the notion of uh, individual rights and individual re- responsibilities. Um, and identity politics, which is another name for what you've been describing, um, really erases individual rights and responsibilities and turns everybody into a representative of some class. And uh, as you say, every class is either a victim or an oppressor. And um, so that removes all um, notion of the individual on which democracy is based. Well, my most recent uh, notice of this particular issue is uh, out of a, a court ruling in Texas, of all places, where the judge determined that women are going to have to start uh, registering for uh, selective service to be drafted into our military because a group of men who believe it's somehow unfair to them that they have to register for the draft also want the women to um, have to register as well. And that sort of strikes me as um, men carrying it a, a bit too far. Obviously, there has been a vilification and a, a sort of... Uh, backlash against men, but these men's rights groups, how do they fit in with your, your, um, your writings on the rise of misandry? Well, I think that the case you just described in Texas um, strikes me as uh, something that's long overdue. Uh, I mean, I would argue that, in fact, conscription um, itself is something <clears throat> that is morally problematic. But if you're going to do that, then I don't see why it shouldn't apply to all citizens equally. Well, speaking as the father of two daughters, I can tell you that um, you know my experience in the military is, is not something that uh, uh, 95% or more of women would be prepared to undertake, and uh, I don't think it is uh, either fair or equitable to put them in that position. But uh, that well, that, that I mean, issue itself was pushed by the feminists who d- demanded that they, uh, you know, that uh, women be allowed in combat and they'd be treated interchangeably with men. Yeah. Um, but the other argument is not that um, is not that you lower the standards of combat training in order to accommodate women, but rather anybody who is qualified and there will be some women who are. Um, 
would be um, expected to do that. And there are plenty of jobs in the military for both men and women who are not qualified for, for physical combat. The question here is not whether people like it or not, not whether it's uh, a, a sentiment that is uh, easily born, um, although I would have to ask you what you would think if you had two sons who were of military age. Um, it's really, if you're going to go the way of conscription as opposed to the volunteer army, which you have now, then this is something that has to be taken seriously. Well, I don't want to get bogged down on this topic, but I just believe that any civilization that starts sending its uh, its women into uh, to combat, especially in you know elective uh, wars of um, of you know overseas. Now, if you know if the country is invaded, everybody grabs a gun and defends it. But if you're sending people overseas, I just don't uh, I don't see why why we should do that to our daughters as long as we still have um, sons sitting on the couch. But I want to. And I'll let you respond to that. I do want to get to the larger issue of the rise of misandry and what's causing this and um, what can be done. Well, as for the cause, I mean, there probably are many causes because it's a complex social problem. Um, I think one change that um, caused un- was an unprecedented change was the development of the pill in the 1960s, which separated um, sexual pleasure from reproduction. That meant that for the first time in human history, um, all the rules that had been developed about relations between the sexes went out the window. Suddenly, people had to rethink everything. Now, out of that, among other things, came um, the feminist movement, which was originally an egalitarian movement, not what it is now, which is largely a, a political ideology. Well, it seemed to me that uh, Gloria Steinem and, um, and uh, what was her name, Dawkin? Um, Andrea Dworkin. Andrea Dworkin uh, were, were pretty political and pretty uh, oh, they were. angry in their day. They were. But Betty Friedan, who originated this uh, second wave of feminism, uh, really was egalitarian. So for five or six years, the movement coalesced around her, but then it began taking a new direction at around the same time as the civil rights movement morphed into the black power movement, egalitarian feminism morphed into ideological feminism. And that was the beginning of identity politics. And uh, And we were off to the races. That was off. That was a, a kind of unstoppable train. Right. Um, so, uh, but I mean, I think that this unprecedented event, the the, um, the uncoupling of reproduction from pleasure, um, which suddenly made everything seem possible, but within a few years, women decided that uh, maybe. It was not going in the right direction. Maybe men were getting all the, the... Maybe it wasn't as good as it was cracked up to be. Freedom for women meant something different from freedom for men. And 
they began saying, well, we have to analyze this from our own point of view, not from the point of view of equality, but from the point of view of what's good for women. Well, on that point, I would tend to agree with them, but uh, it seemed to me that there was a, a quick move to vilification of men who had, uh, and yes, certainly there were masculine excesses, um, a great many of them over the years, but uh, especially in Western civilization, women seem to have occupied a, a, a position of, uh, of value and, uh, you know, contribution to society that was, uh, was really uh, unequaled in any part of the world. And to see the Western feminists so angry at men who had, uh, you know, uh, shared this journey with them so long is uh, sort of alienating. Yes, I'm not sure if I understood you correctly. Were you saying that that men's uh, excesses, as you say, were were more prevalent in the West. I think that the West has actually been the most uh, helpful society for women. No, no, I'm, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I'm saying that uh, while there are have been abuses of women uh, by brutes in Western civilization, as a as a society, we have been uh, the most uh, committed to uh, equality and the advancement of people, uh, and you know, for the for the great greatest portion of our history, um, you know, working outside of the home was not any great privilege. It was it was, um, it was a burden. It was a huge burden working in the fields and um, you know toiling uh, away and and uh, being protected by being able to make a home was actually a privilege and. The women now seem to be very angry about that and unfamiliar with the actual, you know, realities of, of human history. Well, what they're angry about, uh, partly, is um, that the world outside the home is a lot harder than they thought. And uh, so they began by arguing that, hey, you know, we're here, we're just like you, just treat us the same way and we'll all be happy. Um but uh, the fact is that uh, when they found out what the world of work was about outside the home, uh, they didn't like it, and they wanted to rearrange things. Well, they I think to, I think Steinem is Steinem uh, tricked them on that regard. Uh, you know, her and Helen Gurley Brown and the others that led them to believe that it was all glamorous uh, outside of the home, and they come, they come to find out that ninety-five or more percent of jobs are just drudgery. Yes, and um, they also began to manipulate data by by arguing that, well, men had always wonderful jobs and women didn't. But the fact is that most men did not have wonderful jobs. They were just, uh, you know, pushing pencils around to make other men rich or working in loading docks or whatever. Exactly. So... so but because it had become a, a political ideology, um, they found that uh, they could manipulate facts to suit themselves. They could ignore some things. They could argue with other things. But there had to be one enemy around which they could all coalesce, and that was men. You know, I think it's uh, important that we not get carried away and paint with too broad a brush. Uh, I, I think most... Um, 
Uh, women and most men, for that matter, are perfectly well adjusted to each other's strengths and weaknesses and, uh, and you know, or know that they're in this uh, life together. It seems to me like um, uh, this rise of feminism has taken hold in, in the universities and uh, and in this country uh, and the Democrat Party as a driving political force. Well, I thought it was confined to the university until a few years ago. Um, and then it went it went ballistic. Um, that was in that was around the time of the election, um, maybe slightly before, but certainly after the election, it turned into something that had previously been seen mainly on university campuses. Uh, that is different now. It's become mainstream. Now, all the t- all those years, however, when when I thought that it was confined mainly to universities, which is where I lived and worked, <clears throat> lots of changes were were going on. I mean, it wasn't really limited to universities because the people who run um, the bureaucracies, the people who influence the government, the lawyers, for example. Um, many of them are feminists, and they use their influence to change laws and to develop uh, vast bureaucracies that serve women but not men. So all those years, things were happening. It was it was not as limited as we as it might have seemed. Oh yes, it's it's, uh, it's deeply entrenched in co- the corporate bureaucracies. It's institutionalized. Uh, yes, it is. But uh, in law. Where where I've noticed it most uh, pronounced is, um, you know, in the uh, 20, uh, 2016 presidential campaign, Hillary Clinton, uh, in her zeal to capture, you know, ever larger uh, percentages of the women's vote, started uh, vilifying and denigrating women who uh, would consider voting for her opponents. So they were supposed to check their uh, political beliefs and, uh, you know, uh, preferences at right. the door and vote in favor of gender alone. And even if she hadn't said that, other other women were certainly saying it on her behalf. Madeleine Albright, when there's a special lost, place in hell for women who don't support right. other women. When she lost the election, uh, it wasn't because she had won a bad campaign. It was because of misogyny. That was her explanation. Give me your uh, your take. I don't know how um, much a student of American politics and and everything you are, but give me your take on the Kavanaugh hearings and the uh, the. Um... Well, that was just uh, that was the inevitable result of Me Too. Did you believe Blase Ford, or did you uh, or did you get the feeling that this was uh, a little bit too scripted? Well, whatever my feeling was is unimportant um, because I can't get in the head of anybody else. Um, But I think that the way it was carried out, um, you know, accusing somebody in the court of public opinion. um, And um, well, well, once you do that, basically, you cannot you can't undo it. Um, So it was the atmosphere of a. well, they call it a witch hunt. It could be called a, a lynching. It could be called a, uh, you know, but but basically the whole atmosphere of Me Too is something that undermines the the rule of law by undermining due process 
and the presumption of innocence and um and that's... So you allow you you inflame people's emotions, the mob, and uh, leave the result to to the mob. And that's sort of been carried forward from the uh, from the campuses as well, where we had all of these rules. I think that grew out of Title IX in the United States right. that said, uh, you know, you were basically going to turn due process on its head, start with the presumption of guilt, and then. Uh, you know, have these uh, tribunals uh, make determinations on whether or not men were rapists. That's right. And that's why I say that it was around the time of the election and the immediate results of the election, such as Brett Kavanaugh, that um, this went mainstream. That's exactly what went mainstream. What was going on in universities behind closed doors suddenly was playing itself out on the, on the, the TV screen night and day. And we saw people like um, the senator from Hawaii, Hirono, and uh, Christian Gillibrand basically telling uh, men who had any concerns about this to sit down and shut up uh, that women are to be believed as the default position. Well, now think of that slogan, believe women. That means basically if you believe anybody who accuses someone else without needing evidence, there's no reason to have a trial at all. And that that is – that's the linchpin of of mob rule. That's the denial of law and order. And to think that we've come to that point. Well, and there is great power to be had from that position as well, because if all is necessary is an accusation for you to uh, to you know prevail over someone, then uh, then that that puts you in a total position of authority. And and once again, it it takes. Uh, this this whole notion of misandry and and gives it real currency. Well, it, yes. Now, um, one of the things that I've been working on is, um, you know, in talking about sexual harassment, which is a which is a problem and uh, needs attention. Not that way, but it needs attention. But there's a parallel phenomenon that nobody is talking about. I call it identity harassment, and that is the relentless heaping of shame and ridicule and blame on men in general, uh, which undermines masculine identity to the point, basically, of silencing men. And it starts in elementary school. It starts very early, that's right. So I, I want people to talk about that. If you're going to talk about sexual harassment, which you should, then you should also talk about identity harassment which can be devastating, not only to individuals, but also to men in general. Because um, my other, the other part of my theory is that to have a healthy identity, a healthy one, is by definition to be able to make at least one contribution to society that is A, distinctive, B, necessary, and C, publicly valued. And if you can't do that, and men are having a hard time doing that now, then you can't have a healthy identity. And I think that <clears throat> I think that not being a psychologist, I can't make a causal relation, but I think there is some connection between this problem, this intense problem of identity, and the fact that the number of suicides among men, for example, is so much higher, three or four times higher than among women that the level of the number of men who drop out of school is so much higher than that of women. 
Uh, and there are a whole bunch of social problems that seem to indicate that we've got to be able to help men have a distinctive uh, and necessary identity, and we've got to honor them for it. And if we can't do that, then we're basically going to have a population of resentful men, and we all know that a population with any resentful class is big trouble. Especially men, but that takes us back to the the point that I was making earlier, where the feminists have pushed uh, women into um, you know normal fields that were the domain of men, such as combat and. Uh, and there are others where, you know, the vast, vast majority, over 95 percent, are, are not well suited to that. Um, and, you know, those were the areas where men were acknowledged for their value. That They still do those jobs and they still pay the price for doing those jobs. I think, you know, almost 100 percent of men are uh, of linemen uh, that work out, you know, in the winter months trying to get the power back on or men. But men are being denied their value for doing these things because when you look on TV or in popular culture, those those jobs are always represented as being done by, you know, these uh, these feminist icon types. Yes, there is a problem here. And I I think that uh, if there is a solution, because we can't, you know, some of this is the result of technological change. Um, we can't really roll back technology. So there are many jobs that formerly could only be done by men, but now they can be done by women. Certainly, earning a living and providing for a family, you don't have to be a man. You can be either a woman or a woman who gets assistance from the state. Uh, But there's one thing that no woman can do by definition, and that is become a father. So the so the so fatherhood could be the source of a genuine um, uh, healthy identity for men, and it absolutely should be. But as you uh, mentioned back there, the state has also stepped in there and adopted that role, uh, and led to well, social dysfunction on just a massive scale, at yes. least in this country, of men, um, you know, uh, being uh, exercised. I don't think I used the right word there, uh, from the home. Exercised, yes. From the family. That's right. Um, So fatherhood is in danger in that sense. Um, There are laws, for example, that uh, give mothers priority in custody over children. There are all sorts of legal matters that have um, assisted women who are either unable or unwilling to marry. but the but the but I think what we need to work on is re, is defining more carefully the the nature of fatherhood because fatherhood is not assistant motherhood. You know, it's not a matter of fathers helping clean up the diapers. Um, there are some things about motherhood that are distinctive, namely um, just the ability to give life, the ability to create life. Well, yes, and and caring for infants. But as children go older and begin to enter the larger world, they need another kind of love. It's the difference between what I call unconditional love of mothers, which is a very close, binding, emotional tie, and um, earned respect, which they get from fathers. 
And earned respect means uh, that you have to lead children into the larger world so that they will leave home and be independent and learn skills. And this is, this is where they earn respect from other people. And that is something that is uh, much more difficult to do for women because they're so closely tied with the children who were once their infants. So I think that there is a distinctive role um, uh, uh, for fathers, both and of, I think that's been ignored. And both of those that's, roles are equally as valuable, you know, the, exactly. the, the nurturing and the uh, and the um, the judge, judgmental is not the right word. The, that's not the right word. Qu- but I, the, you, qua- you the qualified the um, support yes. Um, yes. You know, of the father. Now, um, we, we, we desperately need to address the problem of fatherhood because fatherhood on in popular culture is routinely ridiculed and trivialized and at best it's uh, something like assistant motherhood oh my um, god the the or at the, worst, buf- the buffoonish characters characterization oh, of uh, fathers terrible. in popular culture is just a joke if i see another you know, child or woman teaching uh, the father of the house how to use a wrench. I'm, um, it, it's just unbelievable. Uh, they, you know, the, the the father and the family is always a, a a role of ridicule and buffoonishness. Now, this is this is part of what I call um, identity harassment. Um, but I think that. It's possible, at any rate, to recover the sense that fatherhood is a distinctive and necessary um, contribution that only men can make to society. And if we could establish that, um, then we could work on that and perhaps reduce the polarization. Um, Certainly, we could reduce the resentment. Uh, But that's a big project. I mean, that's, you know... There are there are some there are increased there's an increasing number of psychologists who are studying fatherhood, but it's only just beginning. We're at the first steps. You know, 20 years ago, nobody did research on fathers. I think when Daniel Patrick Moynihan first noticed the the rise of this, and it was just about the time you know of the feminist movement. Uh, uh, I think only about 20% of uh, black children were born out of wedlock, and it was an even lower percentage of whites. And now 70% of black children are born out of wedlock, and and uh, uh, approaching 40% of whites are born out of wedlock. So, Well, and that's partly because of the advent of no-fault divorce. At first, no-fault divorce was intended to help the few people. You know, why should these few people have to live with people they can't stand. It's a merciful compassion act to allow them to get a, an easy divorce. Well, 40 years later, the results are in. The results uh, of children from father, usually fatherless families. Um, and those children are at much greater risk of every conceivable social pathology. Dr. Nathanson, we, we have got pathology. to end it there. I appreciate very much you coming on. Dr. Uh, Paul Nathanson is a uh, religious studies professor at McGill University and the author of four books on misandry that you can find on Amazon. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. 
Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. Whether you're moving in together for the first time. This can be your closet. Or you're a new parent to a little fur baby. Viva paper towels can help you maintain a clean home. They're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. So they clean like cloth, helping you pick up after your new pet in your new home. For an exceptional cloth-like clean, use Viva Towels. Visit vivatowels.com to learn more and start fresh with a clean feeling of home.